And we're in the, our study of the Gospel of Mark. I hope you all have your notes, uh, note packet or whatever you do with them, whether you download them or whatever. I'm going to be uh, referring to a map that's on page five of the note packet. So if you have access to that or if you can get access to it, uh, that would be great. We'll be looking a little bit later in, in our time together uh, with that. Uh, we're in chapter 1. Uh, I want to pick up when verse 11, just uh, or verse uh, 14, excuse me. Just a couple of things about Mark. Um, if you, I can't remember who was in the class last week or not, but Mark is the earliest of the Gospels. Uh, my opinion is that it was written about A.D. 49. Uh, it was written largely to a Greco-Roman audience. Um, there are a lot of reasons why that was the case. And this is John. This is the individual John Mark, who's mentioned a number of times, very close to uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, as well as he had a um, he, his home was in Jerusalem with his mother, and she is she and he are referred to in the Gospel accounts as well. Mark is unique. It's a very unique Gospel. Uh, Mark spends very very little time on major events like the baptism of Jesus, temptation of Jesus. As I said last week, I think I said, oh, it's in the notes too. Mark's like a docudrama. It's like bang, bang, bang. Very quick, um, very piercing um, accounts, and then he moves on. There's not a lot of reflection, and it really is a fast-paced gospel. And you see that, uh, you certainly saw that last week if you were in the class. And we ended with the, temp the material we were covering last week. We ended with the temptation of Jesus, which is amazing. It's only two verses in the Gospel of Mark. Matthew devotes an entire chapter to it. He does not, he, Mark, does not focus on the three temptations. He doesn't focus on their content. He's just saying that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now, verse 14 then shifts. Again, it's so, 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 it's a summary, it's so fast paced, and it's over. Now, after John was arrested, the John there is John the Baptist. After John was arrested, that's recorded. We'll read about this a little later on in this book in chapter six. And the, uh, all the gospel accounts record this. John was arrested by Herod Antipas who was the governor of Galilee. He was the son of Herod the Great. When Herod the Great died in 4 BC, his empire was divided into three segments. Herod Antipas, his son, got Galilee, and John was arrested by him. The Bible tells us that John was critically preaching against what Herod Antipas had done in marrying his brother's wife. Putting it another way, he stole his brother's wife. And uh, because of his public criticism, he had him arrested. So the connection here is that as John is arrested, that causes Jesus to leave Judea and to go to Galilee. Now, I told you this last week, and I referred you to one of the maps in the packet, page 7 map. It's a large map. But you always have to remember this. Galilee is in the north. Judea is in the south, and in between the two is Samaria. So Jesus has been in Judea. The Gospel of John explains to us that Jesus ministered almost a year in Judea. But all the Gospels attest to this. The arrest of John the Baptist caused Jesus to go to Galilee. Exactly why and precisely why the Gospels are silent. But that event is always the connection that causes him to shift to Galilee. And so if you look at the map that I referred to at the beginning here on page 5, it's quite a marvelous map, actually. It shows you the Sea of Galilee. It's really not a sea. It's a lake. It's about 13 miles long, about 7 miles uh, wide. Now, I want you to look very closely at this map. What we are interested in is the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And on that map, I want you to notice right in the middle of the northern shore, a city called Capernaum. Capernaum, and you circle that or underline it so you always know what it is, 
Capernaum is going to be the base of operations for Jesus. It will be his home base for his two-year ministry in Galilee. He will always come back, and that is where Peter's home is. And he will stay with Peter uh, a, a number of times. So he's now shifting to Galilee, and this map only focuses on the Sea of Galilee, but to the, to the north of the Sea of Galilee, to the west of the Sea of Galilee, and to the south a little bit is the very fertile valley. That's very, very fertile area, and you go a little bit north, uh, the Hula Valley, H-U-L-A Valley. These are the, the kind of the breadbasket of Israel. So Jesus is now in Galilee to the north. And John, uh, excuse me, Mark tells us, back now to the text, verse 14, proclaiming the gospel of God, takes you back to verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So you have four themes of what Jesus is proclaiming. The time is fulfilled. What time? Now, for a, a, a Gentile, for a Greco-Roman individual to whom this book was written, that little phrase, the time is fulfilled, doesn't have as much meaning. But it, of course, has tremendous meaning for a Jewish person. That would mean that all of the prophetic declarations in the Old Testament there are 357 of them that refer to the first advent of the Messiah are fulfilled. So in other words, it is a big change in time right now. Things are happening. And to add to that, Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is at hand. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew elaborates on this, that the primary message of Jesus is repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Now, that has an enormous, an enormous amount of theological content to it. The kingdom of God is at hand. You know the Lord's Prayer. One of the parts of the Lord's Prayer we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is at hand means that God has now invaded this rebellious, sin-cursed planet, he has now invaded the kingdom of darkness. He's now invaded the kingdom of Satan. And so, I mean, all of that is a part of this. God's rule has been challenged. I mentioned this last week. The fundamental question of history is who has the right to rule? God who created everything or Satan? Satan is a title which means adversary. Satan is challenging God's right to rule. And so by Jesus, go to the verse, first verse of this book, this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He has come. God's kingdom is now being established on earth. What we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, begins with the first advent. He, Jesus, has invaded Satan's kingdom. And that is why so many of Jesus' miracles, we call them messianic miracles, are challenging the darkness, the depravity, and the dysfunction of Satan's rule. Disease, sickness, blindness, deafness, demon possession, and ultimately death. So Christ, now the emissary of God the Father, has invaded Satan's kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. And therefore, if these two things are true, the time is fulfilled. Paul writes in Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent his Son. So we are at that point in human history. It's the fulcrum of history. It's the dividing point of history. In light of that, there are two things. Repent. Now, repent is, the Greek word is metanoia. It means to change your mind about something which then leads to a change of actions, but it's fundamentally a change of your mind. The Greek word for mind is nous, metanoia, you see nous there. But this repent is change your mind about things and believe the gospel. The response 
as you're changing your mind about God, about what he's doing, about his purposes, about Jesus, you then believe in the gospel, the good news. And so, and that good news, go back to verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, the Son of God. So, I mean, again, this is, this is typical Mark. In, in, in just two verses, you have an enormous amount of detail. Almost every single word is important in trying to unpack what is going on in Galilee, because it is in Galilee where the proclamation of the gospel begins to be proclaimed in a triangle of cities, which I'm going to talk about that later on. I'm not going to do that right now. But this is the message. It's a message about the kingdom and the accepted, anticipated response of change your mind about God and what he is doing and believe, a response of faith. And so, uh, again, it's just, honestly, it, it's astonishing when you study all the other Gospels, how Mark covers something so important in two verses, and then moves on. Okay, yeah. are there any questions about just those two verses? But I tried to develop a little bit that kingdom theme, which is so, so important. I have a, re a request. Um, because of the way that uh, Mark is constructed, you go from the temptation of Jesus um, you know, baptism, temptation, John is arrested, he begins his ministry. Is it possible for you to give uh, us some, like, where these dates are? Because I thought, I, I'm not as quite as up on where the John's arrest is. I thought it happened later. So I don't know if he's changing time here um, for a purpose or just to kind of get I mean, an idea in terms of uh what was the time of jesus of john yeah. yeah chronologically you know is this uh you know is this two is this AD 32 yeah exactly because I, I thought it was later that there was a lot more going on before john was arrested well, but he, again, here it looks like it happens immediately as soon as yeah, he was baptized well, yeah and john is and really all the gospels are are not focusing on this John Mark is not interested in tight chronology. Mm -hmm. He's just focusing on the events. But we do know from other the other Gospels that the arrest of John is about a year, a little over a year after the baptism of Jesus, which is the beginning of his public ministry. Because Jesus' first year of his public ministry is largely in Judea. Uh, the Gospel of John covers some of this. And then, then, then he begins, and that's what all Mark is doing. He's just telling, he doesn't tell us anything about his Judean ministry. He doesn't say anything about it. Totally silent. But it would be about AD 32, early AD 32. Thank you. So the, the chrono, I get lost because I assume adjacency equals finish to start. Um, yeah, you don't don't do that. Don't don't stumble into that trap. I just I just don't know where the gap, how big the but gaps it, are, and if you could help me with that. Yeah, that it is help. hard. If you are really really interested, there's a fine book on this, written by an author named Harold Honer, H O E H N E R. Uh, the title of his book is Chronological Aspects in the Life of Christ, and what Honer does is he develops a very it's a very very good book. It was actually. He has two doctorates. It was his first doctoral dissertation, and it's a fine attempt, and it's pretty widely accepted to reconcile all of the things in the four Gospels into a pretty tight chronology, and that, I think, would find helpful. Thank you. Now, verse 6, were there any other questions? Okay, everybody with me? I do have a question. Yes. We talk about the repent and uh, believing suddenly in God, um, I would think that that would be repent would also be repent for some of the things we've done. Said, well, I, I used to do this and I thought it was all right, but now I believe it was wrong and I'm really repenting for it. Is that well, correct? That's, no, that's correct, Woody. Uh, I I think I just briefly mentioned the actual word repent is metanoia, which means to change your mind about something. And so as you are, you come to faith in Christ and you begin the, the work of sanctification, you are changing your mind about sin, changing your mind about your habits and patterns, 
And therefore, you're also changing your actions. You're changing your behavior. You're changing the way you do things. But what, do you, what is really important in that term is that you are first changing your mind about something. And as you change your mind about something, that then affects your behavior. I mean, they go hand in hand. And so I, I didn't deal with that in a, in a major way because the context of this verse, verse 15, is change your mind about God and what he's doing and believe in the gospel, believe in the good news about Jesus. But no, you are absolutely correct. What you said is, is absolutely spot on. But I'm trying to stress the real meaning of the term is first you change your mind about something, which then affects your actions and your behavior. Does that make sense? It does. Thank you for verifying that. Okay, very good. Well, let's go to verse 16. And what this is Mark's account of the calling of four disciples. Presumably, although we're not absolutely certain, but presumably these are the first four disciples that Jesus calls. It seems, based on the other gospel accounts, that other disciples then follow, Matthew, Thomas, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, etc. But these are the first four, and these are the ones, of course, that are quite prominent in all the gospels. All right, now you already explained, and you're looking at your map, passing along the Sea of Galilee. And this means that Jesus must be in the area of Capernaum, because Capernaum is where Simon and Andrew's fishing business was, and that's where Simon Peter's home is. I've been to Israel many times in my life, and we always spend a lot of time, uh, it's a whole day almost, in Capernaum. Peter's house is there. We have found Peter's house. We know exactly where it is. And so Jesus is in Capernaum. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Those nets are about 10 to 15 feet in diameter. When I would, when I would lead my trips to Israel, we would always go on a fishing boat, it, it modeled after a fishing boat, and the guys would always give an, a, a demonstration of what fishing looked like at the time of Jesus these very large nets, which we recast out, of, and then you drag it along and catch fish. And so that's what they're doing. And Jesus said to them, it's just, it's typical Mark. And Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. I told you last week, look for how many times immediately is used. It's used 41 times in this gospel. And so Mark, Mark is zeroing on one thing. He doesn't give the background. He doesn't explain that Andrew meets Jesus first, and Andrew goes and gets Simon and brings Simon to Jesus. He doesn't deal with any of it. He's focused on one thing, the calling of Simon and Andrew, and their response. They follow him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother who were in their boat, bending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So you have four disciples, and as you already know, these are going to be part of the inner circle of Jesus. Peter, James, and John are going to be that inner circle. Andrew will come in at times as well. And so you, you, you are left, as you read this incredibly brief summary, with two questions. It begs two questions. Question number one is, who is this one who is issuing these calls? And the second question is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean, this is, this is a typical mark, where the other gospel writers give us a lot of detail about these men, a detail about the calling, not Mark. But you see, remember, he's writing to a Greco-Roman audience, and all he's doing is explaining this one who is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, is calling out disciples, and he is calling them. He, as the sovereign, is calling them, and they are responding in obedience. And so 
what we will learn as we go through the 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark, we will learn what it means to follow Jesus. Because all you see in this very brief paragraph is Jesus saying, follow me, and they do it. Now, it's very difficult to imagine and believe that they understood all that that meant. But that's not the point. The point is the sovereign Lord is chosen for, and they're following him. One of the themes, this is a very important sentence, one of the themes of all four Gospels is the progressive understanding by the disciples of who Jesus is. This is really important, and this is one of the things you are going to see in Mark. They are going to progressively understand who Jesus is. They're following him. There are you know, reasons that in many ways the Bible does not explain it to us. The Bible is interested in the obedient response to the call, follow me. But they will begin to learn what that means. So it's extraordinary. It really is. It's an extraordinary summary of what is a very deep, very complex, and, and quite miraculous calling by Jesus, choosing four men. Right now, there will be more that will follow. Four men. And he is going to say to them, I will make you to become fishers of men. It is very doubtful they understood what that meant exactly. But that is exactly what he's going to teach them. He is going to prepare them for their revolutionary responsibility when he goes back to the Father. They will be fishers of men. These men will tear the Roman, Greco-Roman world upside down. And that's, it's amazing what Jesus is doing in such a short, um, a short period of time. All right, now. I Dr. Eckman? Yes, may, please. May I ask a question? Of course you may. <laughs> Is there a sense that uh, these four men knew who Christ was by reputation, or perhaps they were followers, even though they were very juvenile in their following? Or is this all brand new to them, that they, they were just called because he saw potential in them? Well, that's a great question, and certainly the, the latter point you're making, your latter question is true. Jesus saw the potential. There's no question about that. But to the first part of your question, the text is, is somewhat silent on this. We do know that Andrew comes to Christ for, first, uh, follows Christ, and then he goes and gets Peter, his brother, Simon, his brother, and brings him to Jesus. James and John, the brothers of, uh, who are the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee was a very wealthy fisherman. He had probably the largest and most productive fishing business on the North Shore. But they follow him. There is some evidence, um, Jim, that John and James particularly were familiar with the ministry of John the Baptist, that they had been exposed to that. Indeed, it be, because of, of some of the things we read just briefly and have talked about uh, in some of our earlier studies, the familiarity with the ministry of John the Baptist was fairly widespread. That may have helped prepare them for what following Jesus, obeying his command, immediately following him may have been involved. But honestly, the Bible overall, in terms of answering the first part of your question, the Bible overall is pretty silent about it. We, we want to infer from the way in which I believe it's Matthew's gospel, we want to infer that when what Mark is summarizing occur, based on detail from Matthew, this wasn't the first time they had been exposed to Jesus, that they had heard Jesus teach, had heard about Jesus. So the sense when you read Mark is, it's bang, he meets him, and they're following him. The other Gospels, as you read a little bit between the lines, indicate that in this, this call was based upon some previous contact with Jesus. And so, Jim, that's about all I can say. It's like so many things in Scripture. The Bible isn't interested in giving us a lot of the detailed background of this. The Bible's interested in one thing. They obeyed and followed Jesus. <laughs> so that's is, there any, is, there any, is there any corollary between how people are called today and what we're seeing here? 
Well, um, yeah, uh, yes, except for you and me, we know that, I'll just use a statistical example, we know from some research that was done a number of decades ago that before a person responds positively to the gospel, they, they will have heard the gospel at least seven times explained to them. Now that research is, is, is quite a few decades old, so I don't know if that would still be accurate. So it seems to me that it, it is applicable that whatever was going on in Peter and, and, and Andrew and James and John's life, there had been some preparation uh, for Jesus showing up and then them responding. But the Bible is silent on that preparation. And then and a final comment about your question is, the Bible is also very clear that someone who is called by the Lord to salvation, it is the Holy Spirit who is preparing them. Uh, it's what, it, and this is in the Thessalonian letters particularly, what is sometimes called preparatory, the preparatory work of the Holy Spirit, where he is beginning to open that person's heart to receive with full understanding the message of the gospel and respond to it in faith. And yet it's that complexity of the railroad tracks. The one side is divine sovereignty, the other side is responsible freedom. Both are involved in the decision of salvation. And so it is God calling someone to salvation, but that person responding as an act of their will with full understanding of what they're doing and accepting by faith the finished work of Christ for them. So, I mean, I got into a little bit of a theological discourse there. I'm not sure that helped much, but... <laughs> Thank you. All right, if there are no more questions, let's move now to verse 21. Now, again, I draw your attention to the map, if you want to look at that, on page five of your notes, where Capernaum is. It's in the middle of the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Let me say a few things about Capernaum. Capernaum was a very important city. It was on a major east-west road. West would be from the, the Mediterranean Sea and the Via Mars, the great Roman road that went up along the sea, to going to the east to the King's Highway, which would take you up to Damascus. And so it was a major, and there was a major tax collecting center there. And Matthew ran that tax collecting business. Matthew will become a disciple of Jesus a little bit later. It was a major, it was a major city. There was a Roman a centurion that was placed there. That Roman centurion would convert to Judaism. He would build the synagogue for the Jewish people in Capernaum before Jesus shows up. That centurion will come to faith. It also is a major, it was a major trading city because it was on that key east-west road. So Jesus chose, it, it seems to me clear, that Jesus chose Capernaum because it's a location and its strategic role it played in Galilee, especially on the North Shore. And it was the center, as I already mentioned earlier, it was the center of a major fishing business. There were a lot of fishermen there. The Zebedee family, James and John were the sons of Zebedee, was probably the most um, successful and most affluent of the fishing family families. But Peter and John, uh, excuse me, Peter and Andrew, they are from Bethsaida, which is the to the northeast of Capernaum. Uh, they moved their fishing business to Capernaum for a number of reasons. So as they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, there's John's Mark's favorite word immediately. On the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now, by the way, that synagogue, we know where it is. If you ever go to Israel, you'll visit that synagogue. And that synagogue that's there today is built on the foundation of the one that Jesus ministered in. And don't, so here, here you have this setting. Jesus as a teacher, it's the Sabbath, and he's in the synagogue teaching. So presumably, there's a large audience there, because the Sabbath, among other things, you would go to the synagogue. Remember, the synagogue is a teaching center. You don't go to the synagogue to offer sacrifices or anything like that. That's down in Jerusalem. The synagogue was a teaching center. 
and you, you would be taught the law, you would be taught the Torah, you would be taught the Old Testament prophets, you would be taught the Psalms. And they, when guests would show up, they would invite them to have a word, to read from the Torah, or read from the prophets, and give a what we would call a little sermon. So that's what Jesus is doing. So this is not abnormal. This is not unusual. Verse 22 is what's unusual. And they were astonished at his teaching. That Greek word is really hard to translate. It's a superlative, astonished. They were astounded. They were overwhelmed at what he was teaching. For he taught, Mark explains, for he taught them as one who had authority, exousia, who had authority, and not as the scribes. Now, the scribes, a scribe is a teacher. Uh, they, they taught the law. Almost all scribes were Pharisees. Not necessarily all, but almost all scribes were Pharisees. And so you see a contrast, and Mark is intentionally doing that because this is what the people in Capernaum are doing. They're hearing Jesus teach. They are absolutely astounded at what he is teaching, almost overwhelmed. by Why? Because he speaks with such authority, not like their teachers, their scribes. And so you're pitting the primary authorities, we'll use our language, the primary authorities on the Old Testament, the scribes, versus Jesus. Which one is moving the people? Jesus. And this, is, this gives us a little sense of why the baptism of Jesus is so important. His anointing by the Holy Spirit, his empowering by the Holy Spirit, his dependence on the Holy Spirit. He chooses to do that, and the authority he has is unlike any of the other teachers. And so Mark immediately stresses a major event that occurs in the early days of Jesus' Galilean ministry the invasion of Satan's kingdom. And immediately there was in the synagogue, verse 23, a man with an unclean spirit. That is a Jewish way of putting it. That's a Jewish idiom for he's demon-possessed. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. <clears throat> now that is astonishing, men, because this demon, and please note the plural pronoun, us. So there's more than one in this demon-possessed man, this terribly difficult situation. Immediately, they recognize who he is. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. And this is a title out of the Old Testament, the Holy One of God. And so you have three, <coughs> excuse me, you have three very specific items in what this demon says. Item number one, he recognizes who this is, Jesus and his question, what have you to do with us? Why are you here? This is our domain. This is our kingdom. What are you doing here? Second, have you come to destroy us? Because listen, demons and Satan, the, the head of the demons, they read Scripture. They know their destiny. They know they are destined for the lake of fire. And so they're saying, you're in our domain. Have you come to destroy us? Is this the end? Because I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I can tell you this right now, two things. There are no atheists among the demons. And secondly, the demons, the demonic hosts, one-third of the angels joined Satan in his rebellion, Revelation 12, 4 tells us. They understand that their domain is planet Earth. 
and that their domain, once Jesus shows up, is being challenged. And so this, this is the ultimate threat to their power and authority is Jesus. I take you back to the message that John summarized, that Mark summarized for us. The time is fulfilled, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. There is no better evidence of the kingdom of God being at hand than Jesus plundering the domain of Satan. And that's what he's doing. And when he casts out demons, when he performs these messianic exorcisms, what he is doing is he is now authoritatively destroying Satan's kingdom. And even today in 2021, every time someone puts their faith in Christ, Satan's domain is diminished. And that plundering of Satan's kingdom, Jesus will talk about that in a later chapter in the Gospel of Mark, and it's in Matthew chapter 16 as well, that Jesus is here plundering the evil one's kingdom. And here it begins. This is the first recorded exorcism in Mark of Jesus challenging the power and authority of the domain of darkness. And it is amazing how these this demonic cluster, this, one of them speaking, but the plural us is used, they, they recognize who Jesus is, and they're challenging him, and they question, have you come to destroy us? Is this the end? Well, Jesus responded by rebuking, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that question, so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority? And by the way, that, that adjective new, that's kine. That's qualitatively different. This is a qualitative difference than anything we've ever seen. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So at Capernaum, in the synagogue, one of the major, major cities of Galilee, major tax collecting center, there's Roman centurions there, Jesus begins, of Galilee and begins his Galilean ministry by casting out a demonic spirit, demons from a man who's demon-possessed. And this is going, this is an announcement, if I can put it this way, this is an announcement of God's kingdom rule challenging Satan. I go back again, go back again to verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here's piece of evidence number one of that proclamation. Jesus is challenging Satan's rule. And now it's in Galilee, and verse 28 tells, uh, tells us his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus purposely, intentionally did this to announce kingdom truth. And theologically, he's challenging the rule of Satan. And of course, that is exactly what he intends to do. And for you and me today, we pray it in the Lord's Prayer, that kingdom come, they will be done. Every time someone comes to faith, Satan's kingdom is additionally plundered. Okay. Uh, Jim, uh, I noticed uh, didn't use immediately that time, used at once. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's a good observation. You did not. I have a question about be silent. Um, does do you believe that um, the kingdom of darkness knew about the cross, or was the cross a surprise? Well, um, I'm assuming that, and we know this is true because Satan quotes it in his temptation of Jesus, that they that Satan reads the Old Testament, knows the Old Testament, he quotes from Psalm 90, etc. So he would have he would have read Psalm 22, he would have read Psalm 16. He would have understood. Now, specifically, Russ, whether he understood in detail all about the specifics of the cross, that I'm not sure of. But I wonder that, why. 
that there is coming a substitutionary atoning death mm-hmm. by the Messiah is clearly taught in Isaiah 53. It's clear as a bell, so as well as the other Psalms I alluded to in, in other places. So they knew, and that's what Satan's temptations are all about. He's trying to get, he's trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Trying to get what the Father promised to him by another way. So I, I read, I read this, and I'm building a bridge here that Christ asks or commands them to be silent, and that their strategy is okay. Let's raise this guy up to the Messiah so that he would not go to cross. They would not take him to the cross. Perhaps that might be a a strategy, and he's saying be uh, to be silent. Um, but I'm, I'm. That's an in, that's a intuition built on a couple of <laughs> shaky bridges. So I wanted to get your comment on that. Well, I um, possibly. I mean, you're asking, <laughs> you're asking a really big picture type question, and I, I don't know if if I can answer that with with great certainty. No, that's fine. I was just looking if you had additional insights. If you don't. Don't feel the need to try to fill in something that's not there. I, I, I don't have any specific insight right now. I think when Jesus says be silent, what this guy, what these demons, or this demon who's the spokesman, or apparently there are more than one because he uses us, um, I, I want you to shut up about all this. I'm not interested in having a dialogue with you. Mm. I'm not interested in answering your questions. What I'm going to do is rebuke you and get you out of this man and end this man's suffering. And that's it. So I think what Christ is doing is he's not going to enter into any significant dialogue or explanation. And he's not going to, he's not going to dignify their questions by answering them. And Jesus just chooses, as Jesus is silent, and he orders them to be silent. And apparently they obey because <laughs> they, they end their questioning. I think Jesus is not about to get into a theological discussion with a bunch of demons. He's interested in one thing. I want to prove who I am. I'm going to do a messianic miracle that's going to indicate that I'm here announcing the kingdom of God coming to earth, and I'm starting to plunder your kingdom. Your days are numbered. There's no doubt about that, but I'm not getting into a discussion, so shut up. That's my colloquial paraphrase of what's going on. Love it. By the way, thank you for the reference to the book. It has a a section that's uh, interesting on the 70 weeks of Daniel. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, and if, he, he has he, a, he follows Robert Anderson there and it's a great discourse on the exact number of days from the decree of Artaxerxes till Jesus. It's tremendous. Yeah, I'm, I want to compare it to what I've got now. And then um, I had a question at the end, but you know, I wanted to wait till the end of the class to ask you okay. about the Babylonian versus the Jerusalem Talmud. Okay. Thanks. All right. Verse 29 then. Let's move into the next um, paragraph. And again, Mark is is making sure we clearly understand he's still at Capernaum. He hasn't left. He's not moved anyway. He's still at Capernaum. And immediately he, notice immediately, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, they are the four disciples he's called so far. And by the way, I, I wish I could take you there right now. The home of Peter is just down the street from the synagogue. It's about a block and a half from the synagogue. So he's not going a very good distance. And Simon's, verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law, Simon remembers Peter, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever. This reminds us of something. Peter is married. There is a possibility that Peter had several children. I'll talk more about that later on because of something that comes up. But this is his mother-in-law. She is with them in the house. And notice again, immediately they told him, Jesus, about her, the mother-in-law. Verse 31, and he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So, I mean, this is a miracle. Now, this is not a miracle for the people of Capernaum. This is in Peter's house. So who's this miracle for? Well, it's to relieve Simon's mother-in-law, but Simon, Andrew, James, and John. That's why Mark tells us this. James and John are there too. The progressive understanding by the disciples of who Jesus is. They're seeing Jesus do another miracle. 
They're seeing Jesus restore Simon's mother-in-law to health and to validate that she is really cured, she's out in the kitchen making pizza for them. Feel free to smile if you want. I can't hear you laugh. But anyway, so I mean, that again, don't miss the importance of what's going on here. This is a didactic miracle. Didactic means teaching. It's, it's validating to Peter, Andrew, James, and John who this is. I believe this is the Messiah. I believe that you know, Peter will say, but they're watching him do things. Oh my goodness, look at this again. Verse 33, 32, the evening, that evening at sundown. Now, what you need to do is remember sundown, that's the end of the Sabbath. Go back up to verse 21. He's in Capernaum. It's the Sabbath. After being in the synagogue and teaching and healing that demon-possessed man, he walks down the street to Peter's house. Now it's sundown. Sabbath is over. What happens? They, the they would be the people of Capernaum, brought to him all who were sick, oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. But he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Again, it's like what we read about in verse 20, uh, was it verse 25 about be silent. Jesus is not interested in having proclamations from demons, nor is he interested in having any kind of a dialogue or discussion with demons. He silences them figuratively and literally. And so this phenomenal cluster of events in Capernaum announcing, if you want to put it this way, announcing Christ's Galilean ministry in probably one of the most strategic cities of Galilee along the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Unmistakably, this proclamation and the messianic miracles that accompany this are going to shake things up. And they're going to shake things up spiritually. The demonic power now realizes one with authority is here. It's Jesus. And if I think they knew the scriptures, they now would understand the clock is ticking. Our doom is about to be sealed. And when this Messiah dies his substitutionary death and is resurrected, that was taught in the Old Testament prophets, then, then our days are numbered. Our doom is about to be sealed, and our days are about to be numbered. So they are now witnessing the beginning of the end of the demonic rule. Now, uh, it's still 2,000 years later, it's still going on in one sense. And so this is a fantastic demonstration of a major watershed, a major threshold has been crossed in Christ's ministry, but also in the larger theme, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what Mark is doing is explaining what that means by the actions of Jesus. Are you with me? Okay, silence means you're with me. Now, verse 35 through 39 is really, really interesting. I mean, it's fascinating because Jesus has created a stir. He now has the potential for an enormous following. What does he do? He goes up to a mountain to pray. Notice verse 35. Notice the four verbs. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So you have four verbs. Rising, departed, went out, and prayed. Jesus is intentionally separating himself from the crowds, from the momentum, from the stir, from the excitement. And we know that the disciples are annoyed at Jesus. They're frustrated with Jesus. Look at the next verse. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Remember, so far he has four disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And they found him and said, everyone's looking for you. <laughs> You see, just imagine this. Now, I don't mean to, to degrade what Jesus is doing, but just imagine this is a politician, 
And a politician has an enormous following. Is he going to go away and separate himself and go into a, a silent retreat? No. He wants to build the momentum, not Jesus. Not Jesus. Everyone is looking for you. They're annoyed and frustrated with Jesus. And probably you can imagine Peter in his mind saying, hey, wait a minute. I thought this is what it was all about. We're trying to gain a whole bunch of followers. What are you doing? <laughs> and Jesus said, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For this is why I came out. And he went into all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And so verse 39 is a summary of Jesus' Galilean ministry in one sentence. Jesus is interested in widely proclaiming the kingdom message, not getting a huge following. And it would be interesting to probe this question. Is Jesus interested in swelling the crowd? Or is Jesus interested in thinning the crowd? Because to be a disciple of Jesus, he will talk later on in the Gospel of Mark. If you want to be a disciple, you take up your cross daily. Follow me. Beginning to explain what it means to follow Christ. And so Jesus is not interested. Not that, please, I'm not saying this in a blasphemous way. But when I put it this, I think you understand. Jesus is not interested in doing a dog and pony show. He is interested in one thing, proclaiming the kingdom and doing messianic miracles to validate that proclamation. Jesus never does a miracle to show off. Jesus never does a miracle to gain a huge crowd that will start yelling and exclaiming things. He is there to proclaim a message and to validate that message by his miraculous power. And that's all. Whether he has, because as you know, by the end of his public ministry, the crowd has thinned. There's nobody left. He dies alone. And so there is an important thing to remember here. The Lord Jesus is not interested in doing a show-off, miraculous dog and pony show. He's interested in proclaiming a message, validating the message, and moving on. And so Mark has done this masterfully. The annoyance of the disciples, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, they're frustrated and annoyed with him. And he says, hey, we're not hanging around. We're moving on to more towns. We're moving on to more pieces in Galilee. And Mark just says he went throughout all Galilee. Now that's probably accurate and maybe a little hyperbole there. But he does spend two years pretty much trekking all over Galilee, preaching in the synagogues, casting out demons. Mark stresses that, casting out demons. He's plundering Satan's domain. Now, what time is it? Uh, 20 of. Okay. Let me start this next section because this is introducing another very important theme here. And a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him. Now, Mark does not tell us where this is. We know he's in Galilee, and I explained to you where that is. You know where it is. So Mark is not interested in telling us the precise location yet. But it's a leper. Now, I think you know this. From, from the Old Testament, I would think of a passage like Leviticus 13. Leprosy made someone unclean, and that is the Old Testament language, the law. Uh, leprosy was a skin disease, and because you were unclean, tragically, a leper was an outlier of the community, an outcast of the community. And so this man comes to Jesus, implores him, and kneels, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, men, that is quite an extraordinary statement. If you will, you can make me clean. 
So this leper, we know nothing about him. We know nothing about the background or details of this man's life. But the one thing we do know, this is a man of remarkable faith. You can make me clean if you will. So in his statement, his declaration, this man exhibits extraordinary faith. If you will, I recognize your authority, I recognize your power, and I would assume I understand who you are, you can make me clean. It's almost like it's up to you, but I know you can do it. Moved with pity. I read from the ESV translation, you could translate that compassion. And there is a little bit of a difference between pity and compassion. Pity has a little more of a negative connotation than compassion, but either one works. Moved with pity and compassion, he, Jesus, stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, you ought to underline that or circle that. Because in the Old Testament law, if you touched a leper, you were made unclean. So here is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, touching a leper and said, I will. I will what? I will heal you. If you will, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I will be clean. So it's a declaration, a proclamation, I will, and then the command, be clean. And notice Mark's word, favorite word, 41 times, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And so you, you here again, just don't miss the importance of this. Jesus is in Galilee, Jews, who understood the stigma of leprosy, and how that made everything unclean. They were outliers and outcasts, ostracized by the communities. Here's this man. Jesus touches him and answers with a profound declaration, I will, if you will, you can make me clean. I will be clean. And immediately this man is cured of leprosy. Now, leprosy is a skin disease. It can have a rather broad meaning, actually, but it was it was a horrible disease. And the flesh, and just what it looked like, immediately this man's flesh, his arms, his legs, his body, every part of him is clean. He's remade in that sense. And so there's probably no greater evidence of Jesus being the Messiah the Messiah of Israel. Messiah means anointed one. Yes, Messiah of Israel. Then Jesus healing lepers. Because leprosy and that, that horrible skin disease became a metaphor for sin uh, in, in, in many ways. And you have Jesus touching the unclean. He does not become unclean. He makes the unclean clean. Only God can do that. And so this is not only a validation of his messianic position, this is a validation of his person. He's the God-man. So it's an extraordinary miracle. And so Mark is doing this, this bang, bang, bang stuff. You have first, the confrontation with satanic evil in the synagogue of Capernaum. Now you have the confrontation with leprosy, which was a despicable, demeaning, degrading disease, which resulted in someone's ostracism, and Jesus touches him. And the clean makes the unclean clean, capital C. Now, I'm out of time because what follows needs some explanation. So we'll have to pick up with verse 43 in two weeks. Do not look for an announcement for class. We will not have class next week. All right, are you with me? On everything? Yep. yep. Fabulous stuff, isn't it? Wow. Thank you. All right. I'm going to pray and let you guys go. Have a great week. Stay cool if it's possible in the hot, humid weather of Omaha, Nebraska in June. The Lord is sending this too early. I've asked him, Lord, would you stay at all for another three or four weeks? So far, he hasn't answered my prayer, so I don't know what to make of that. 
in all seriousness, I'm going to have a good couple of weeks. I will see you in two weeks. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time around the Word of God. I love the Gospel of Mark. It's short, it's pithy, it's bang, bang, but you see these immensely important words of Jesus and miracles of Jesus attesting to who he is. The kingdom of God is at hand, and by his words and by his works, he's proving that thesis. And the demonic hosts in terror are turning and, and seeing the power of God now being manifested. And this dear man who is a leper is freed from leprosy. And Jesus, you touched him. Only God can do that. Another validation of who you are. Thank you for the privilege that you give us to study this material together. We ask your strong blessing on these men to be strong men of faith, men of God, who in their works and in their words represent you well. I commit each one to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, we'll see you next week. Blessings on you. Bye-bye. Have a good week.